Welcome to Technovation. I'm Peter High. My guest today is General Stanley McChrystal. General McChrystal is a retired four-star general in the U.S. Army, the former commander of Joint Special Operations Command, and the author of multiple books, including his upcoming book, Control, A Leader's Guide to Risk. Following a 34-year career in the United States Army, General McChrystal founded the McChrystal Group roughly 10 years ago, which is an advisory services firm that specializes in leadership consulting. In this interview, we discuss the importance of adaptability and agility, and General McChrystal's view that nimbleness is a continuous journey. He notes that cross-functional collaboration is not automatic, and organizations must be deliberate in fostering trust in a distributed environment. To do this, he suggests that transparency, vulnerability, individual empowerment, and a common purpose are all critical ingredients. We also discuss the characteristics of a resilient organization and which lessons from the military he sees as most applicable to the business realm, among a variety of other topics. This interview was recorded live during MetaStrategy's digital symposium earlier this week. If you enjoy Technovation, please consider reading my book, Getting to Nimble, How to Transform Your Company into a Digital Leader. The book is now available on Amazon. As a special offer to our CXO listeners, if you purchase 50 or more books for your team, I'd be happy to join your team for a group discussion on it. To learn more, write us at info at metastrategy.com or visit gettingtonimble.com to learn more. And now for a word from our partner, Aptio. Digital transformation is a journey, not a destination. Technology decisions teams make today determines the success of tomorrow. That's why Aptio is dedicated to helping companies harness the power of trusted, actionable insights. It's called technology business management and more than 60% of the Fortune 100 are already using it to speed their innovation. Learn more about how Aptio can help you connect your technology decisions to better business outcomes. Visit aptio.com. And now on to the interview. Stan, thank you for, for your service. Uh, thank you also for the, the, uh, the, the wonderful forward that you included in my book. It's an honor to collaborate with you once again and appreciate you making time for our session today. Well, thanks and congratulations on the new book. I'm truly excited by it. The only thing it should have done is come out 10 years ago. <laughs> well, I, 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 we can't turn back time, but hopefully from this point <laughs> forward, there'll be some benefits to it. Thank you so much. Many of you will know Stan, as I mentioned, is a, a, a retired four-star general, the former commander of U.S. and International Security Assistance Forces in Afghanistan, and the former commander of the nation's premier military counterterrorism force, uh, JSOC, the Joint Special Operations Command. Uh, for the past 10 years, actually, just this January, he celebrated a 10-year anniversary of the McChrystal Group. He, uh, he is now an advisor to chief executive officers and other executives of companies here in the U.S. and around the world, um, and providing them innovative leadership solutions to, uh, to, that help them transform and succeed in challenging and dynamic environments. And Stan, what, what challenging and uh, dynamic uh, an environment we have found ourselves in. May, may we live in interesting times? We certainly do. Um, and I must say, uh, speaking of books, this is one that I recommend as much as any other, certainly, and comes up again and again, a uh, team of teams, new rules of engagement for a complex world, um, and talk about a book that uh, now is five or six years old, and thank goodness it came out when it did because of the ways in which it applied not only during the good times in the first several years uh, after the book's publication, but applying all the more so now during these trying and in many cases unprecedented times. And I wonder if you could maybe take a moment uh, and talk a bit about some of the, uh, now that you've spent a decade in the private sector after the, your, your long and distinguished career uh, in the military, I wonder maybe if you could talk a little bit about um, some of the ways in which you're, you, you've seen 
some of these ideas working best in fostering cross-functional collaboration. Right. And Peter, thanks, Gannon. What we see both from the military in my earlier years and in civilian companies now is that cross-functional collaboration is not automatic. We think that if we have a meeting together and we tell people, okay, the different parts of the organization should connect, even the logic of it, as we would say, don't make it so. And that's because there are a number of resistance points, the silos you build up, the cultural cohesion of small groups, that the hesitation to share information with people you don't know or trust, and sometimes just an ignorance of how the big machine works and therefore the importance of doing that. And so I think the first thing we as leaders have got to understand is we can inspire and try to persuade people to do it, but we've really got to take a more intentional approach. And so I, I think it's a little bit like you want to build sidewalks where people have to walk. And so molding processes in a company, you talk about an ecosystem, I think you mold processes and that's critical. You enable with things like technology, you enable with the structure of buildings, all the other supporting things, and you are creating a culture inside that environment in which the behavior you're seeking is appropriate to your need. And then the other point I'd make is just when you do it and you take great pride and you want to lock it down, forget it. It's You've got to keep changing it. We're working on moving targets forever now. Mm-hmm. And so when you talk about being nimble, it's not nimble for a jump. It's nimble for a constant journey. And it's interesting. We spoke even just earlier today, in fact, Stan, and you were talking about how some of the work that you did at JSOC and, and really revolutionary work, the military in many ways is by design siloed. One thinks of the different military, the branches of the military, for example, and the different areas and capabilities that they have. And a lot of the work that you did was, in fact, making those silos at a minimum more permeable, if not eliminating where, them where that was possible. But you talk about how, you know, even though some of the great work that was done there, uh, that it takes sort of some recalibrating. It's not something that you 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 go on this journey, get to an endpoint and it's done. It, it's a constant evolution. Am I am I providing an appropriate synopsis of your thoughts? Well, that's right. The the requirement of war was a forcing function to bring different parts of the elements together that were uncomfortable with each other, different services, different cultures as you say. And in that situation it was easier to argue for and cause it to happen. Once you get back in peacetime, or in the case of a business, sort of business as usual, people tend to go back to their cubicles or go back to their sections, go back into their functional team and operate in what seems like a very steady basis and people would say no drama. But then what, would, what do we do when we have a crisis in our business? We come together, we communicate, we solve problems, we get outcomes. And then the second that's over, we say, boy, that was really good. And we were we were really hitting on all cylinders. And then we go back to the way before. And my argument would be, if you have figured a way to be better, it doesn't mean you have to work 24-7 and live on pizza. But the reality is a different mode of operating interconnectivity unlocks capacity. And that's what I think more organizations need to be thinking. You thought had reason to think a lot about resilience and the cultural uh, attributes necessary to bring it about in a military context, first and foremost, obviously. And now as a business leader counseling other business leaders, you're doing much the same. And of course, as I mentioned at the outset, during these times, especially finding ways to to foster resilience and, you know, drawing out the cultural attributes to do so become that much more important. 
Talk a bit about what you've learned as well as what you have brought to and taught out with many of your, your clients in terms of the ways of best to do so. Sure. First, to touch on military history, if you go back to World War II and Blitzkrieg, the old idea of the German Wehrmacht tactic of running armor uh, columns supported by air was not to destroy the enemy forces. It was to fragment them and to shock their communications, to destroy their commanding control and the cohesiveness as an organization. And so now we talk about what do we do to become resilient? And you think the opposite. When something bad happens, whether it's a natural, uh, a hurricane hits us or a business upset, what do we really need? First and foremost, we need communication. We need to understand what's going on across the organization to first to be able to respond to it and two, to build that sense of connection. Then we need trust because we're going to operate fast. We're going to make tough decisions and we need to make trust without all the transaction costs of long time and, and things like that. And then we need decisive leadership. We need people who can take those things together and say, this is the new reality. This is what we must do and move forward. So resilience is really an organizational set of attributes that the organization, I would say, can take a punch and can get back up again and can do all of those things. If you take a very efficient organization that's tight as a bowstring, but when one thing breaks, it sort of all falls apart, then you've got the opposite. And in perfect weather and perfect business conditions, a sailing ship with all the, the rudder set and the, the uh, sails tied in position might go fast. But as soon as the seas change, the wind shifts, then all of those settings are incorrect. So resilience is about the ability to constantly adapt to that. You also, Stan, talk about the uh, necessity of transparency and consistency in leadership. You, you talked about the stories from your own military days when you would have your briefings for, with people around the world. And you recognize that if you came across as as irritated or you know had a scowl on your face, it would impact sort of how people thought about what they were doing and wh whether it was a good day or a bad day, whether we were winning or not winning as a, as a result of that. And you, you talked about personally learning the lessons of how you communicate, the transparency of those communications, the consistency of them as well. Talk a bit about some of those ingredients as important, especially during times where there's a lot of change. Of course, the importance of transparency to me is just huge. If you don't provide information to people, they will fill the vacuum in their heads with other information. In today's world, they get a million sources, much many of which are incorrect, or in some cases, misinformation. So you got to compete with the fact that they're going to get information. So you got to give as much information as you can and be as open and honest about it. Even if you don't know the reality or it's going to change, tell them what you know and just qualify it and says, you know, as soon as I know more information, it might change. It's also very important to people to believe that you're telling them the truth, that you're telling them everything you know, because again, they will fill their heads with if you say X and don't say Y and they think you know why, they'll start to say, he didn't tell us that for a reason. There's something going. And so you can you can undercut some of that mistrust. In a distributed work environment, it's more important than ever because they're not seeing you often enough or shoulder to shoulder with you to have that kind of comfort. And they get these, what you think is frequent communication, but when they're sitting in their home alone, it, it seems like pretty rare. 
that ability to really believe that they're getting good oxygen to them to tell them what's happening. And that means we as leaders have got to be willing to be a little bit vulnerable in that because when you are very transparent, much of what you're thinking and saying are out there for everybody, not just when you've scripted it and rehearsed it and you got it just right. And that's okay because the reality is if you're not very smart or haven't thought it through, that's going to become apparent over time anyway. So I think it's better to be transparent and share that with people and then invite feedback so that you can iterate to where you're going. And then the last thing is the self-discipline to treat people as you'd like to be treated because the transparency goes with the fact that we should react to bad news. We should react to people making mistakes in a way that we'd like our bosses to react. doesn't mean just forget them. It, it does mean corrective action, but it means in a way that understands we all make mistakes. Well, you, you've spoken and written about in, in many, many areas, Stan, about how the general's role, a leader in the military's role, used to be one of a chess master, that you had a board in front of you, uh, figuratively speaking, that you were setting the strategy and those pieces moved around based upon the ideas that the person at the top was coming up with. And you recognize the need to be less the chess master and more the gardener, uh, which really was about empowering people and, and put, making decisions a possibility for those people who are closest to the inputs and, and recognizing how change was happening on the ground. Uh, talk a bit about that insight initially from your military background. And, and I would love to, of course, uh, hear, hear your perspectives on the application of those ideas uh, to the business realm as well. Sure. Um, if you go back again in military history and you think of a battlefield, maybe a, while, a mile in width, um, a general can theoretically see all of his or her forces on the battlefield and therefore they can move them like chess pieces. That's an oversimplification, but the reality is you see it and in almost real time you can direct movement. Once you spread across hundreds and thousands of miles, suddenly not only can you not see all your forces, even with technology, but the conditions in every part of the battlefield or battle space, as we call it, is different. So the appropriate actions are different. And so telling people what to do becomes impractical. And so what you do is you tell them what outcome we need. What are we trying to achieve? Now, I need you to use your best judgment to do whatever it is best supports that. We had a saying in Afghanistan that we said, if, you, if we give you an order on the ground, and when you get on the ground, the order that we gave you is wrong, execute the order we should have given you. And suddenly, it's thrown a lot of responsibility to young and less experienced people. But the reality is, they are the people that connect that back to what the overall mission is. They're the right people. Now, in the speed in the modern world, not only is this important, it has to be done in real time. It has to be done across the entire organization. So now you've got an entire chessboard of pieces who are all making autonomous decisions and moving. And I know a chess master might be, you know, upset by that. But in a big organization, whether it's business or not, if you don't unlock that, the organization will necessarily be too sluggish. If you try to give uh, detailed guidance from above, you will get it wrong more often than they will get it wrong using judgment up front, even if they've got less experience. And there must be aspects of that as a leader of making sure that people understand that they're not going to 
uh, be punished if the decision they make in real time happens to be an incorrect one. And again, I see applications in the military as well as in business here that if the culture has been command and control previously, well, then people would expect, you know, I, I'm not I'm not worthy of making these important decisions. When you're in, in the transition period, there must be a, a need to give trust as well. And even when mistakes are made, uh, talk a bit about that as well. And that's tricky because many leaders stand up and say, I want you to take initiative and make decisions. That doesn't result in people feeling comfortable to do it. They have to hear that, but then they have to see your response. They have to see what happens to the people who use initiative and fail. And a certain percentage of all actions and decisions will have a bad outcome. How do you respond? I had to learn that even on our big daily video teleconference, my facial expressions, when somebody briefed a dramatic failure, even if it was something really stupid, it was their fault. I couldn't overreact because while I might want to reach through the digits and choke them, the reality was I've got thousands of other people watching and it affects their willingness to make decisions to use their initiative. So it's got to be very careful, carefully responded to because you're trying to nurture this idea that Ted Williams got in the Hall of Fame not getting hit 60% of the time in his best season. So if we, if we can create an environment that says, I know you're not going to succeed unless you're out trying, we're going to do better. I also think you have to add to that inaction is not acceptable. You know, there are a lot of people who will find excuses why they didn't do anything and they'll, they'll look up where the conditions weren't right or the policy said this or the regulation said that. And they're trying to mitigate their own risk. And so what we have to do is hold people responsible, not just for rationally judging risk, but in accepting risk when it's appropriate and actually acting. You've written a lot recently about uh, the our relations with Russia and with China. And I wonder if you can shed some light into kind of the state of play right now relative to some of these, you know, competitors, adversaries, depending upon how you'd like to frame them, uh, countries like, again, China and Russia, who with whom we have, let's say, complicated relationships, to say, to say the least. Yeah. As, as most people know, right after World War II, the United States was 46 percent of the world's gross national product equivalent. So that was an aberrational overweighting of a single country with economic power. And that's not at all the case anymore. But most of us have grown up in some version of that reality. Then we went into the Cold War. We, we had big power competition with proxies and whatnot. And then we entered in a period after the fall of the Soviet Union where the United States was described as a hyperpower and we had tremendous capability. The United States, particularly the corporations from it, had the ability to operate in, in somewhat of a pure capitalist mode. They could go out and see what's best for their particular company, maximize profits for shareholders and things like that. I would argue we're about to, we have already entered an era of what I'd called almost cold competition. It's not war, so it's not cold war, but it's pretty darn close. And it is going to be relentless. And I will even use the word ruthless competition between China, particularly, but also anyone else that can get the wherewithal to do it to include uh, Russia. So I think that we in the world now have got to wake up to that reality and we've got to conduct our business and our foreign policy in a way that that makes ourselves as strong as possible. International alliances for foreign policy a firm status around the world, 
but recognizing that we are not the overarching power, dominant power that we might have once been. But also our companies have got to understand this is a team sport. This is a team of teams now. Companies operate in their own interests, but they also operate in the interests of their nation. And so companies are going to be most successful if our economic system and our, our ecosystem is most successful. So we've got to pull things together in a way for cybersecurity, for trade relations and all these things in a way that are mutually supporting. And that's a bit different than we've done in the past. There are going to be some leaders who say, wow, that smacks of industrial policy or that smacks of a controlled economy. And I'm not talking about that, but I am talking about an intentional effort to make the healthiest economy we can, starting with education for a workforce, security of supply chains, uh, precious or key natural resources, all of those things. We've got to look at the world differently and we've got to act to to further those interests. Very important points and uh, complicated days ahead, certainly. But with the advice that you've shared here, certainly some great uh, nuggets for us to take back as we do our own planning. General Stanley McChrystal, I'm honored you would join us today. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom, your experience with us. Thank you again for your service to our country. And I'm, I'm honored to call you a friend. Thank you so much. Thank you, Peter, and all the best. Thanks for tuning in. Please join us on Monday when my guests will be two Rollins tech executives, Lee Crump, the incumbent chief information officer who's on the cusp of retiring, and his hand-selected successor, Thomas Tesh, the new chief information officer of Rollins.